welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. In October, Science in the City was thrilled to host the first event of our Science in the Seven Deadly Sins series. This one was titled Wrath Goes Viral. The panel, moderated by award-winning author David Quammen, considered infectious disease and where we stand in our ongoing battle to prevent and contain it. For your listening convenience, we're bringing you the entire panel discussion in two parts. In part one, the experts discuss viral evolution, the relationship between humans and the animals that can serve as reservoirs for pathogens that may come to infect us, and how some economic and cultural practices facilitate and increase the rate of infections due to this phenomenon. The panelists are Dr. Ian Lipkin, a pioneer in the field of virology, Captain Daniel Jernigan from the Center for Disease Control, and Marin McKenna, a renowned science writer. So with no further delay, here's the panel. It struck me that um, it might make sense to, to reverse that and turn wrath goes viral into viruses go wrathful. <laughs> and I think that's really what we're going to be getting at. So uh, let me start with a, a, a very uh, sort of a, a historic question, very general. In the late 1960s, we were hearing that infectious diseases were over, that we we had solved that problem. We had all these wonderful antibiotics, and it was thought that that was going to be enough, along with others, I suppose, antiviral drugs to some extent. And it was thought by some, including some very influential people, who should have known better, you would think, that uh, we had uh, closed the book on infectious diseases. But that clearly was very wrong. Um, so why was it wrong? What has changed so much? What uh, led to that mistaken prediction? You're looking at me. I'm, I'm, I guess I am looking at you first, Ian. Yeah. So first, I, I think it wasn't just antibiotics, although that's what we always talk about. In the 1960s, there was this extraordinary heady notion that science was going to solve everything, right? So we were going to have cars that could fly, for example, which I guess was something we were waiting for a few minutes ago. Uh, we weren't concerned about pollution. We weren't concerned about running out of energy or anything else. Democracy was going to be triumphant and everything else. So everybody was quite optimistic. And I think we've become more realistic as time has moved on. That said, there have been many things that have changed. You alluded to some of them, uh, the fact that antibiotics have become less effective. During the Second World War, just as penicillin was first introduced, it took 30,000 units of penicillin to cure pneumococcal pneumonia. So, and in fact, people would recrystallize it out of urine and reuse it. Mm. It was so expensive but so powerful. And now we use millions of units, and in many instances, the drug doesn't work at all. Now, there have been major changes in the landscape. We have a, we have a, a global world now, which is where you, know, you can get anywhere you like. Uh, very, very rapidly. JFK, for example, has 21 million uh, international visitors a year. We can reach 72 countries with a nonstop flight. So anything over there can be here immediately. So we are beginning to see diseases going global. In addition, we've had a lot of deforestation. We've had changes to land use, which result in exposure to animals that we didn't have before. So there have been many things that have come before. Now, when Tony Fauci talks about this, he usually refers to it in the context of HIV, which, of course, is 
the big pandemic, right, that concerns us all. But obviously there have been many more, and you write about them very eloquently in your book, which I highly recommend. Thank you. <laughs> um, Marin, what about viruses? Why did we suddenly start hearing more and more about viruses, certainly not to the exclusion of bacteria? So you asked this of the person who wrote the book about bacteria. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little unfair. Virus I, You know, I, I honestly don't know that I can answer that. Um, because I don't think of bacteria as something that's been beaten. Um, actually, I think about, uh, about what Ian was just saying about the moment of confidence we had in the late 60s when we thought science was going to solve everything and how <clears throat> at that point even the major resistant bacteria had not yet emerged. MRSA had yet to emerge, BRE. Um, methicillin hadn't even been thought up yet. But I think for, for why viruses, I'm going to have to lob the question back to the other end of the table. <laughs> lob it back to Captain Dan. <laughs> I mean, if you take flu as an example, um, it's an RNA virus. A lot of people think that uh, they're more likely to have, replicate a whole lot more. It is a virus that has not just one genome, but it has eight gene segments in it. And so each of those genes kind of codes for a different protein or a different function. And so the thing about it is that that virus can actually exchange its genes from one person to another from uh, if a influenza in a pig is uh, somehow able to get influenza from a human, they can reassort. And so there's this endless capability for these things that are probably not that, not that accurate in their replication. When they make copies of themselves, there may be a lot of errors in that, which may help out for evolution. Uh, plus, they're able to switch genes with each other. And so you're able to create these viruses or create changes in the virus that can really take off in people. And that's where we see pandemics from. And so. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just a whole lot more of them. Viruses can infect bacteria. <laughs> uh, you can get viruses infecting the people, viruses everywhere. And so there's, I think there's just a whole lot more of them. Plus, they have this capability to be just completely able to change themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I think Dan's addressed the biology portion, but there's another one. When we trained in medicine, we're probably about the same age, um, <laughs> we would make, we would say, it's viral. Right, so there was the sort of the default. It isn't this, it's viral. And we couldn't really distinguish amongst all the viruses that might cause disease. Whereas now, our ability to ascertain what's actually associated with the infection has changed so dramatically. We know so much more about it. So whereas we couldn't really say very much, we'd say it's a viral infection, now we can say it's a rhinovirus, it's a coronavirus, it's a herpes virus, it's a this or that. So this has made a huge difference, I think, in terms of the public consciousness of, of viruses. But there are definitely differences in the way in which we are exposed to infectious agents than was, than was present, you know, even as early as 1960s. So there have been something like, I don't know, 70 new infectious agents that I can show on the slide that are viral that have come up since then, which we did not have in those days. Nipah virus, hendrovirus, various hantaviruses, um, coronaviruses, and so forth, uh, which we would not have been exposed to if we hadn't opened up forests and come into contact with bushmeat and all these other things. Let's, you mentioned that before, and I want to turn back to that. Uh, you mentioned uh, coming into contact with animals. You mentioned ecological disruption. I think we have to um, 
introduce another basic element to this. A lot of these viral diseases, the majority of them, the new ones that we're seeing, are zoonotic, right? Mm. They're coming out of animals. A zoonosis is an animal infection that's transmissible to humans. And the surveys the, the, of the of diseases I've seen say that roughly 60% of our infectious diseases are zoonotic diseases, right? So they're coming at us out of animals. I want to come back to what you were saying later, Ian, about the diagnostics, the new, the new capacities and tools of diagnostics. But um, let's talk first about the emergence of these things, where they emerge from, and why they seem to be emerging more now. Somebody want to jump on that? I can. <clears throat> from a flu perspective, really what we're talking about is avian flu or bird flu. Um, flu viruses are largely circulating in two reservoirs generally, in uh, waterfowl like ducks and geese. That's a natural reservoir for influenza viruses. And in people. And then also pigs to some degree as well. Um, but the opportunities for those things to come together uh, are certainly more now than they ever have been. Um, there are couple of things. Crowding is one thing I think that really allows for there to be uh, more chance for there to be a person able to get something from an animal. Uh, there's density of populations. We have megacities now. I think there's 23 megacities. There are over 10 million uh, in, in, in inhabitants now. There's like two in 1970. So it's just been increasing dramatically the density of our cities. We also have dense poultry and dense pig populations as well in order to feed these cities that have all these people that are gaining in their wealth and having increasing their appetite for meat and frankly the ability just to to keep and sustain that population with meat you have to bring it into the city and the cultural practices are often that they would want to have live uh, birds for, for sale or, or live pigs birds and pigs are very easy to move around you can move them into live bird markets where they're killing them so dense cities, dense uh, poultry and pig populations all together uh, where an introduction from somewhere far away uh, can lead to a bird being brought in. <clears throat> we know that from the H5, the avian flu side, that uh, when a, a distant farmer starts having a die-off, because it can be very fatal to poultry, uh, the, the bird flu, they dump them on these markets, send them to the cities, mm -hmm. and then they sell them. And so that kind of a situation is one where it just is bringing these, these pathogens from very far away to the place where all the people are. So that crowding is there. The connectivity is there, too. So the travel from these large urban cities from one to the other, that's easier than it ever has been. And this convergence of uh, humans, uh, poultry pigs, people, uh, all of that coming together in these very dense spaces, I think, puts us in a situation that we just weren't probably 40 or 50 years ago. I think what's interesting about what you just said is that the underlying, it's underlying economic pressure mm -hmm. that's causing on, on the high end of the, or the rising end of the economic scale or economic curve, it's the increased appetite for protein and the rising economies of the developing world is causing sort of Western-style industrialized farming to move into the east, which is probably not going to be as biosecure, except in some areas, exactly. as we'd like it to be. On the other end of the economic curve, um, the movement of people into um, deforested areas as they're, um, they're developed, um, looking for, for bushmeat, for either for cultural reasons or because it's cheap, because you can go into the forest and catch it. 
So people who are not benefiting from the rising economies are just as um, exposed to novel viruses, the viral crossover, as people are who are benefiting from rising economies as well. Mm -hmm. um, Ian, you mentioned Nipah virus. Um, and that story involves um, industrial scale animal husbandry as one of the factors. Um, would, you, would you tell us that story? Give us a, an outline of, of the, the spillover and, uh, and spread uh, well, of that an, disease? There's an interesting segue there into talking about bats. Mm -hmm. One of the world's experts on bat viruses over there, if I had a spotlight, it would show you Charlie <laughs> Kalisher, who really, Charlie, just raise your hand. Okay, so, so Charlie is a, uh, is a virologist who for many years uh, was engaged in a lot of diagnostics, primarily antibody-based diagnostics at the Centers for Disease Control uh, in Fort Collins, Colorado. And uh, he wrote a seminal paper a few years ago which talked about bats and the fact that bats are reservoirs for a large number of different pathogens. You know, we have Ebola and Marburg and Nipah and Hendra and SARS and many others. May, let me just um, parenthetically ask Ian, would you describe what a reservoir or a reservoir host is? What role that plays in, the, in the, uh, the life and ecology of a virus? So classically, when we think of a reservoir, it's an animal that's capable of, of being infected, carrying that infection for a long period of time and literally serving as a reservoir for infection of other species. Frequently what happens is that there's an end host, like humans, where it doesn't, a virus doesn't replicate particularly well. Uh, so it doesn't really spread from human to human in that fashion. But there is a reservoir which then allows infection of humans repeatedly. So examples might be West Nile virus. People don't have very high levels of West Nile virus growing in their blood. but Birds may do so. So a mosquito may move back and forth between birds and infect one person and another person and so forth. Whereas with influenza viruses, once it moves out of a bird into a pig and from a pig into a human, or directly from a bird into a human, with the exception of H5N1 that doesn't do this very well, it can spread from human to human. That's what makes it so, so dangerous. So the Nipah story uh, was, uh, was an interesting one from both scientific as well as political viewpoints. And if I screw this up, Charlie, please correct me. Um, so several years ago, a few years before NEEP was discovered in the late 90s, there was a, uh, there was a disease uh, called Hendra, named after the area was first described in Queensland, Australia, where a horse trainer became infected. He was taking care of a horse that was ill, and he became very ill and died. And as a result of investigation of that outbreak of Hendra, a number of tools were developed that allowed people to recognize Hendra, which is typically what happens when there's an infection, an outbreak. People try to develop tools, so if it happens again, they can figure out what it is. And uh, I think the one who developed those tools might have been Tom Kaizak or Bill Bellini at CDC. I'm not certain who it was. Anyway, a few years later in... Malaysia, there was an outbreak of encephalitis. What was curious about this outbreak of encephalitis is that it was only uh, involving Chinese men. Now, Malaysia is a majority Muslim country, and Chinese men were different than the other, the majority of the men, the Malay men, 
in that they were frequently involved with farming pigs uh, because they eat pigs. It's part of that culture. And the only men who were dying were the men who were pig farmers. Now, there was a report that came out of the Malaysian government suggesting that this encephalitis was Japanese encephalitis virus. So they began vaccinating people for Japanese encephalitis virus. And it didn't stop the outbreak at all. Now, when it became clear that this was not the problem, that it was another virus entirely, and that was really done, that work, by recognizing that, in fact, it was this other virus related to Hendra, there was a political problem because you had an embarrassment. You'd miscalled it Japanese encephalitis virus. So my understanding is that somebody who was very politic had to say to the Malaysian government, you've done a brilliant job of taking care of the Japanese encephalitis virus outbreak, and we're going to help you with this new outbreak. And, and there wasn't any drug for it, so basically it was a question of taking all the infected pigs who had this curious respiratory syndrome and then encephalitis and burying them in large pits, covering them with lime, and stamping out the outbreak in that fashion. And those particular pictures were the ones that we used in Contagion for those of you. Who's seen the movie Contagion? FYI, Ian was the science oh, advisor on. for That's the film. That's not very good at all. <laughs> so in, in those, in the big lime pits that you see were modeled right, you know, from those pictures that we have from those outbreaks in Malaysia. I've completely lost the thread of what I was supposed to talk about. Uh, you're getting around to bats yeah. connection with NEPA. Okay, so... So and then, so, and we'll come back to contagion later on. So, so the the origin of this virus was was a bat reservoir that infected the pigs, and someone had had the very bright idea that if you really want to feed the pigs easily, you plant mangoes trees next to the bat to the piggeries, so the you know the the food's right there. You can throw it right in there with the pigs, and it works out fine. Unfortunately, the fruit bats very much liked to eat the mangoes, and as they would eat the mangoes, because they were infected with this virus and happily living with it, they would secrete virus, which would then be consumed by the pigs, and away you go. Now, the big mystery came about a few years later in Bangladesh, where there was no, no nobody was eating pigs. But because we knew this virus grew in bats, the question came up, how are you going to solve this one? How are they getting infected? And then some very clever people many people, Steve Luby was amongst them, who's at the ICDDRB in Bangladesh, John Epstein, who's here in New York, and others, began to look at bat reservoirs in the area. What they found was that bats were flying over these large containers that would sit next to the trees. It was sort of like a collection of palm sap that would then be sold in the marketplace. And they would urinate or spit or whatever it is bats do in this palm sap. And then people were getting infected the following day as they would drink the palm sap. So the solution for that one was to cover these, these um, collection vehicles, right, for the, for the palm sap. And so it was sort of like they were doing the same thing we do with tapping trees for maple syrup. So bats contributed to the development of, of Nipah virus outbreaks in Bangladesh as well as in Malaysia, but via different routes. In one instance, they were infecting the pigs that were being eaten, and the other people were directly ingesting the pine sap that had the infectious material. Part of this, too, was the fact that the native forests of peninsular Malaysia, where these bats ordinarily would have been feeding, had largely been destroyed, had largely true, been cut true. down. So the bats had been displaced from their native forest, and therefore um, were not only 
enticed to come to the, uh, the mango trees and the other fruit trees planted uh, near pig farms, but they were, they were driven to look for food um, in uh, human-occupied habitat as opposed to being able to feed in their traditional forest habitat. You're right. Marin, you write a lot in, um, in Superbug about the importance of, uh, of evolution, of course, in, in bugs like, uh, like MRSA acquiring this um, capacity to resist antibiotics. Um, and it's a very important part of it, but, but um, people tend not to think about um, Darwin, who graces the lobby out here, and evolution in connection with diseases even, and you two guys can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but, but evolutionary biology is not much taught even in medical schools. But it's, it's crucial, isn't it, to understanding how pathogens um, become human pathogens and how they become more and more severe human pathogens, um, the evolutionary perspective. Can you say something about how that applies both to bacteria and to viruses? I got myself in great trouble the other day by suggesting that um, anyone who doesn't accept the theory of evolution is committing an act of bad faith if they take modern antibiotics. Yeah, so, you know, you're right. I think that people don't think about, they don't think about the evolutionary web. They don't think about the, the inevitable consequences of the actions that we take that set up the evolution of resistance in diseases, whether it's bacterial diseases such as MRSA, or you know, H resistance in HIV is a perfect example of how we've had to deal with the rapid evolution and change in that virus after it emerged. I mean, for, for us in flu, I mean, it's you can watch the stuff happen. I don't think we refer to it as evolution, but you know, mutation or adapt, adaptation or whatever. But I mean, each year we have to make a new flu vaccine because this virus is continually finding a way around whatever has circulated previously or whatever is in the vaccine itself. And so, you know, through tools where we sequence each of the viruses and can put them into trees and look at all of the phylogenetic relationships. That's that's what we do as a living, but it's it. I don't think we think of it as evolution. And it's surprisingly yeah. hard for people to understand that. That that when you people understand, I think that they take a vaccine once or two or three times or five times <laughs> yeah. in childhood, and then they have some degree of protection. Um, but that they then have to take a vaccine every year for flu, not only is confusing in a policy sense, but it it. It, I think it devalues the vaccine for them. So it, yeah, it doesn't really matter if I skip it this year. It's not that important. It's hard to, con to convince them that it is. A, okay, so there, there's a lot of meat in there, some of which I agree to and some I don't. Good. So um, I think the fact that we have to take new flu vaccines every year is a failing on the part of our community because there are portions of these viruses that are conserved. We haven't found good ways yet to immunize people using those proteins, but we should and we will, and I think at some point in the future we will have an effective, you know, once in a lifetime or, or, or at least once every few years flu vaccine. And we're only working toward that. Yeah. But let me just come back to a couple of reasons why I think, you know, evolution should be considered. Um, first of all, there are many different ways in which evolution takes place. With bacteria, it's through sex, right? You have this exchange of genetic and material, and you confer some sort of resistance gene which allows 
you know, that bacterium to survive. And in fact, this is the foundation for recombinant DNA technology, is this principle that was developed by Josh Lederberg, who was a, a member of this, uh, this society. Viruses, we like to talk about them as having a unitary genomic sequence, but they really don't. It's a whole population with a bell curve, and you're just sampling right down the middle. But within that huge population, there's a fitness for all sorts of different environments. So if it moves from here to there, and this requires a slightly different series of properties, then those genomes that are present within that population will begin to set a new set point which, which describes the middle. So you really need to think about viruses as a whole swarm of what we call quasi-species. And, and viruses, as they reproduce their nucleic acid, they have a, every time they make, a, say, a thousand nucleotides, they have one error. So it's like a 0.1 percent error rate. And if you multiply that over minutes and hours, there's a lot of opportunity to explore different fitness environments. And that's, and in addition, flu viruses, as Captain Dan was saying, have the ability not only to mutate in that way, but also they can exchange genome segments. So if you've got an animal infected with two different flu viruses, it can swap out genome segments and very rapidly d develop a whole new fitness landscape and, and then take off. That's it for part one. Stay tuned for part two, in which the panel will discuss the outbreak of epidemics and pandemics, as well as the international scientific and policy efforts to contain these threats. Indulge your gory side with stories of flailed intubations and super spreaders. I'm not going to lie to you guys, it gets pretty gross. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org or email us anytime at scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening.